Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. All right, welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Jason Inman. Jason is the writer of the comic Jupiter Jet, the showrunner's assistant on the code, and host at geekhistorylesson.com. How's it going, Jason? Going really well, man. Thanks for having me. Welcome. And uh, tell us, where are you in the world right now? Uh, I am in Los Angeles. Oh. I'm in uh, an area of Los Angeles called the Valley, which means that it's just hotter. It's about like 10 degrees hotter than the rest of Los Angeles. And you're from Kansas, right? Yeah. What brought you to LA? How did you get there? Uh, well, car. <laughs> uh, but I, I always, um, wor- working in television and film was always the goal. So even way back in the day when I was living, uh, I grew up on a farm in Kansas. I always knew that I would probably come out to LA. So that, that was the reason why I came out here. And what was that first step? What were you, a PA first? What was your first big step to kind of get into that world? Oh, man. That's, um, it's interesting because I think if you talk to everybody in TV and film, you'll find out that most of their journeys are all over the place. My, my first technical film job was I was a production assistant on a commercial for a web-related app that I don't think ever came out, but it had a lot of famous people in it. It had like a lot of SNL alums in it. And I didn't care about any of the SNL alums. I cared about one of the actors in it was Connor Trenier, who played Trip on Star Trek Enterprise. And I am a huge Star Trek fan. So to me, nice. um, meeting him was a joy. Like I, I, He was the one that I stopped and was like, can I get a picture, please? <laughs> um, and um, so that was kind of the first step. And from there, it was just, you know, job, the job, the job, the job. And did you know you had that PA gig going into LA? Or did you just get in a car and drive and then figure that out? I got in a car and I drove. Yeah, I wow. did not. I came out to LA with no job. Um, just trying to make it, you know, and I knew some people out here, but that was it. Wow. Would you recommend that to aspiring creatives who are like, I want to do this, just go or looking back? It depends on what kind of person you are. I find that some people, I, I know a lot of friends in my life that, you know, because I was a theater and a film student in college, and I know a lot of people, and I bet everybody does, where you have the person in your life where they're always talking about, oh, I'm going to do this someday, or I'm going to go back to college, or I'm going to do this thing. And I have a lot of friends like that that are still live in Kansas and still live in Oklahoma. And every once in a while, they'll email me and they'll say like, oh, yeah, I'm going to come out to L.A. Oh, yeah, I'm going to come out to L.A. For that type of person, I would say, yeah, get in the car and drive because you need that hard break. Right. For all other people that are pretty logical and pretty practical, I would say plan it out. Make sure you have enough money saved up for three to four months in L.A. without a job because guess what? That's what exactly is going to happen. It's going to take you three to four months to get a job. Right. Um, but yeah, some people really need to rip the Band-Aid off. Yeah, you got to throw them into the pool, so to speak. They got to learn to sink or swim. You know, yeah, one of the best pieces of advice is I've, uh, best piece of advice, excuse me, I've always heard from writers is that your productivity suddenly goes up when you have a kid. Interesting. Because you have to feed them. Right. So you can't be lazy. Writer's block can't be a thing. You got to produce work. And I've always thought that that was a very interesting um, statement. And that's, you know, it, it, again, it is the thing, jump off the cliff, do it or don't. Yeah, it's interesting that when you have a deadline or you're getting paid for something, your productivity, just like that, instantly gets a little bit more reliable than if it's suddenly a project that you're working on by yourself. Why is it so hard for people to project manage themselves? You know, I think the reason why is because in a perfect world, I think, especially for Americans, I would say, I don't, you know, I don't know how many international listeners you have, or especially for Americans, I think if you were to ask Americans, what would be your dream life? Most Americans would probably say, I would bet 90% of them would say, I just want to sit in my house, (laughs) watch some movies, watch some TV, maybe go out and sit on the porch, you know, drink a beer, watch the sunset. And I never have to worry about bills, rent, mortgage, anything for the rest of my life. If I could just do that every day, that's a great life. And I think that informs why if we're left to our devices, 
yeah, that's why we default to that. We're just like, yeah, I just, I want to watch a movie. I don't want to write because that's work. Or I want to go walk outside because that's what I want to do. I don't want to write, you know, and it, it, it's an interesting mix is because, you know, you have to fight with that idea of like you write because you have a story to tell. Like there's a story that you have to tell. And so it has to defeat your impulse where you're just like, I just want to sit on the couch and watch a movie. Right. A friend who's um, head of production at a, at a production company once said that you shouldn't tell a story unless you have to tell that story. Would you agree with that? I do. I do. I also agree with, um, there's another thing that I've heard from several writers, which is um, if you can tell that story with any other character besides your main character, then you need to rewrite it. Oh, wow. That's a good one. Yeah. And I, I think that's very, uh, um, that's very specific, especially for comic books. If you have a Spider-Man story, but you can plop Superman into the lead role and nothing in the story changes, well, then your story's wrong for Spider-Man. Wow. So let's get into, you know, what you do, who you are. You're a writer of comics. You're a showrunner's assistant. You're a host. You do a lot of things. Yeah. How do you divide your time? What, what do you identify as? Walk us through, like, where you're at right now. Oh, it's interesting. Um, well, it's interesting because... I think another thing that everybody will tell you, uh, I know this, I hate to turn this episode into the advice for coming. <laughs> we haven't done that episode yet. So we're happy to make that this one. <laughs> <laughs> we can. <laughs> well, uh, cool. Uh, this is the tourism guide. Of <laughs> um, I found in Los Angeles that you have to especially wear a lot of hats because work is not always guaranteed out here. So you have to hop into stuff right now. My life is my basic nine to five, actually more, um, nine to seven is going into our offices for the code that, which is a CBS drama. that's going to come out in February. Um, and that's my nine to seven. I'm there doing that job from nine to seven. And that job can be anything from, you know, helping out in the writer's room, um, helping the showrunner, uh, scheduling travel for, for actors or, or even members of the staff helping with research is a lot of different stuff, but it's, it's great because it's a perfect, it's got going to college for television writing because you get to see, I'm, I'm not writing any of the episodes. I want to, but I'm not writing any of the episodes yet because I'm the, I'm the assistant to the staff, but I get to see how the sausage is made. And I get to see how like professional television writers do every day of their life or what, what is it like actually breaking a story in the room? What is it like doing the script? So that's, that's kind of my, that's my nine to seven. And then usually when I come home, it's when the other stuff happens, either the podcasting or the YouTube videos or actually writing on my own projects. I will say though, that I have spent several lunch breaks on my show, um, at the nine to seven writing on my off hour stuff, because is if I don't, you know, there's just simply not the time I always, I've heard that as well. That's another piece of advice that I've always heard is, is that if you say, Oh, I don't have any time to write. You need to make the time to write. And if that means don't not taking a lunch break, then that's what it means. I just realized something similar. I was at the DMV uh, this week and I realized, holy shit, I've got four hours right now before I like my ticket comes up. So I feel like you being on working at the, as a showrunner's assistant during those breaks, it's all about finding those little moments and being able to write in that moment, right? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's a good idea. Like That's a great idea, especially... Um, I've actually done that a lot when I, when I go to a doctor's office or something like that, like I'll take an iPad with me and I'll like throw up in Google docs. And like, even if I'm just jotting notes or general feelings about what I'm working on, even if I'm not actually scripting, I feel that really does help your project because if you are to later write that project, like later that night, those feelings, those thoughts, the way your mind processes that story will help you out later on. Wow. And then what about geek history lesson? What, where does that fit into the picture? Well, the secret of a kiss lesson that we um, that many people don't know is that we pre-record all the episodes. Okay. So we we don't do it week to week. We we do we 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 do about five episode bunches. So uh, Ashley Robinson, my co-host, and I will be like, okay, these are the next five, and then we'll say, all right, we're going to record all of these like a week from now. And so we have like a we usually about once every two months have a week that's pretty work intensive because we're doing all the research and we're doing all the stuff like that. Um, but then we go into that weekend, we make sure like we're very dedicated. We record every episode in that weekend and then we don't have to worry about our podcast for the next month and a half. 
It's just more oh, efficient. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I can't imagine doing a weekly podcast. Like it, it, <laughs> like it, it oh, it, it, I, I did have one before I did Geek History Lesson, and it was like just even scheduling with my co-host was just such a massive pain. Right. It makes you think about TV shows who have to have guests like every night of the week, you know? Right. Yeah. And then, oh my God, like somebody drops out. Just crazy. So, you know, you do all those different things. Um, and it, writing is involved in all of them, right? Would you say there's a one cohesive piece of feedback for writing all those different types of things? Um, I mean, I think for doing any stuff online, I think the biggest piece of advice is just consistency. I mean, that's not really answering like the writer's question, but that like it's just consistency. Is it is it keep showing up, keep doing it. If you're going to do a podcast, like make sure you always have it out every every week. Like don't skip a week unless you tell your listeners that you're going to skip a week. Like obviously, don't put out an episode on Thanksgiving week because nobody will listen to it, man. But you know, like you know, the week after Thanksgiving, you should probably have an episode. But um, yeah, I don't know. And I've always found the best thing when you're doing something that's not specifically a script or a comic book. Or actually, no, this, this does work for a script or a comic book as well. In podcasting is I always think about what would I think if I was listening to this? You're always your first audience, right? And you should make everything you create from podcasts to videos to scripts should always be, if you wouldn't watch it, then don't make it. Well, what's the value that you're providing, right? Exactly, yeah, right? Definitely. Yeah, I think that's for us too. And that's the goal every episode for us is to hear like these insights and provide value to the listeners. That's um, awesome, man. Yeah. So, yeah, so you're, you're, like, you looked at that there was this hole. You guys were like, this is, there's no podcast out here that's giving me this thing, that these insights or this advice, and you made it. That's great. Definitely. <laughs> um, so let's get into your Kickstarter campaign. I know that's something you definitely wanted to talk about. I want to know how that fits into what you do and what you're doing. Uh, I know it's a newer project. And I want to know, you know why you're passionate about that and the process of using this Kickstarter campaign to achieve what you need to achieve and why you need to use the Kickstarter to achieve it. Well, the Kickstarter campaign I have coming up is called Science with an exclamation point. So it, it is like the song being like, science! It's funny because it's about a 14-year-old girl going to the most advanced science school in the world called the Prometheus Institute. And all the mysteries and the drama that will unfold as she goes there because there are floating robots. Her head, she doesn't know if she trusts her headmaster because the headmaster has some shady business with her dad in the past. And, and she thinks that maybe this guy murdered her dad. So she doesn't know if she can trust him. And then also her roommate who she has a crush on may just have punched a hole in the, in the time space continuum. So she has a lot of normal problems to deal with at the science school. And, um, we named it science just because we were talking about it. Me and my co-writer, Ashley Robinson, we couldn't come up with any good titles for it. And I just kept joking, like, we should just call it science because that's really what it is. And eventually we settled on that title. Um, so our Kickstarter starts September 12th and it'll be at sciencecomicbook.com. Pretty simple URL. Um, and, and if, if you hear this before September 12th, then obviously there will be nothing at that URL because the campaign is not live. But after September 12th, hello, future people, it will be live. So comic books have basically were my gateway into writing. They were getting my gateway into stories. They were my gateway into everything. And so comic books were always uh, the goal, kind of an idea, or the idea to make comic books. But the secret that you learn about comic books once you start making comic books is that comic books are very hard to make, and comic books are very expensive. Primarily, if you are the writer, you have to pay any artist you do, or I hope you pay your artist a living wage because you can slam out a script of, you know, like let's say as a writer, you're writing a comic book script, you can probably slam out, I'd say six pages a day, maybe even more, maybe even 10 if you're really like you're a Tom Taylor or a Dan Jurgens, you're like one of the pros. That artist at max can maybe draw two pages a day. Wow. So they have to spend more time with your script than you do. So that eats up more time of their most professional comic book artists, like the guys that draw from Marvel and DC, they spend sometimes a day to a day and a half on one page. So if you're asking a person that's not at the pro level to draw your book, I really think it's responsible to pay them. Oh, because they're spending so much time. And that's where, for us, it came to Kickstarter. Because, again, um, you know, I, I don't have $10,000 just sitting around that I can be like, ah, oh, comic books. You know, um, 
But the great thing about Kickstarter is, is that you can go to Kickstarter. You can be like, this is our book. This is our art. This is what we've done. Like we've drawn maybe the, se- the first seven pages. Um, and people can basically pre-order the book. It's, it's amazing because a lot of people I know, I know a lot of comic book writers. And I've seen this on Twitter and I've seen this at conventions. Their whole idea is, oh, I got to write for Marvel and I got to write for DC. If I don't write for those guys, if I don't write Superman or I don't write Spider-Man, then everything I write is worthless. And, and I say that's absolutely wrong. Don't depend on Marvel and DC to make your comic books. Make your stories and put them out into the world yourself because 90% of the artists and writers that are working at those big two companies, if that's your goal, that's how they did it. They made their own comic books until somebody at Marvel and DC noticed them and was like, oh, hey, I I see that you've made like six comic books all on your own. That's great. We want to, what would you do with Superman? That's a great That's a very long answer, yeah. but I, don't, I hope that made sense. Oh, definitely. And as far as as you create this Kickstarter and you, you're trying to obviously get people to provide uh, money to create this comic, where is it at right now? Is it written? Are you still writing it? We are, um, we are about halfway done writing it. Um, and as of right now, the only the first 10 pages are finished. So um, – it's kind of like I heard this. I, this is a piece of advice that I'd heard a long time ago from Robert Kirkman, who is the creator of Walking Dead and Invincible. I heard this on a podcast actually. He said, "Why would you ever, why would you ever write or draw the second issue of a comic book if you haven't sold the first? Interesting. And it sla- that slapped me across the face, and I was like, "That's exactly right. Why would you put all that energy into the issue two if nobody's read issue one?" Or nobody's bought issue one. Um, so we apply that to our pitches. So with our pitches, we generally do like somewhere between five to ten pages of art, just depending on like where the scenes end up. Like, you know, sometimes we have scenes that end up that end on like page eight, and we're like, no, 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 we should probably go all the way to page eight. Like you want to go to the end of a scene. And then we we pay out of our pocket, like an art our artist, to draw those pages. And then that's what we show. So we look at the Kickstarter, like we've made the first ten pages. We're going to, I think we're only going to show like the first seven on the Kickstarter because, you know, we want to keep some secrets. We want to keep some mystery. And that's what you put out on the Kickstarter. And if people like the first seven pages and they want to see where it goes, then hopefully they will, you know, pre-order the book basically through the Kickstarter. But then if they don't, then you know, like, oh, okay, maybe this story isn't the one I should pursue, or maybe I should rewrite this story because obviously it's not connecting with an audience. Interesting. The artist that drew the first seven pages. That's the very same artist that obviously would continue uh, drawing the rest of the, oh, the book, right? Yeah, okay. you should always you should always pitch or um, kickstart with the artist that you're. Yeah, our, our artist is uh, her name is Desiree Pittman. Who, fun fact, we when we were thinking about doing this project, we went to Wizard World Portland in I think March or April, and her and her husband were at the table right beside us, and so we spent four days basically talking to her. And then by the end of the four days, we were like, hey, we've got this project, and we think we, you're really cool, and we think we'd like it, and it, it worked out. Wow, that's crazy. And that's actually something that goes back into the topic of like going to convention and, and networking and learning how to do that, all that, because you've already done that. You've already... Yes. Yeah. I, you know, one of the best things I love to do at comic book conventions um, is to go to Artist Alley and look for artists, because I'm always... And I say, this, I say this to people on Twitter, like a lot of people on Twitter will send me fan art of stuff. And I always say to them, if you're an artist, if you want to get into comic books, and I know this is a writing podcast, but we're going to talk about artists. Yeah, for sure. You should definitely have a portfolio online and you should have a website or at least an Instagram because I'm the person that if I see a piece of your art come through my Twitter feed or I see somebody retweet it or share it, I'll hunt that piece of art down to the person. And then I will always contact the person and be like, Hey, do you have comic samples? Like, do you have pages that you've drawn? Because I'm always looking for artists to work with, especially in comic books. That's how we got our artist for Jupiter Jet. Um, his name is Ben Matsuya. Um, he'd only drawn like one comic book before, but he drew a piece of fan art of me. And I emailed him and said, Have you have <laughs> pages? He did, and immediately emailed him back. And I was like, Well, I'm going to pay you. I want to hire you. Here's our project. Here's the script. When can you start? Wow. Love that. Was he doing the fan art based on your work for DC or how did he hear about you or want to draw fan art for you? 
I believe he did fan art of me from when I worked on Screen Junkies when I was on Movie Fights. Oh. And that YouTube show. So, um, cause he did a, it was a group picture. It was like a, the bunch of us at Screen Junkies is what he did. Cool. Um, and as far as, I guess, obviously, once you find the artist, are you working with them directly as you write those first seven pages or what's the process we're going back and forth with them? Uh, well, with, well, Jupiter Jet is over, but with Jupiter Jet, we, and I, and we do, we're doing this on science as well. Like the, the first step I found, especially for writing a comic book is email your artist and say, is there anything you hate drawing? Interesting. Because if you find out your artist hates drawing dinosaurs and then your whole script is about dinosaurs, then you should probably either rewrite your script or find a different artist. Oh, wow. Because your artist is never going to finish that book if they hate dinosaurs, right? Most artists I've found are generally like, no, I'm, if, I don't, if I don't know how to draw something, I'm up to the challenge. But I have found, it's interesting, most artists have always told me cars. Most sequential comic oh, artists will say, I hate drawing cars. And you're just like, all right, cool. Which was a, a hard fact, a fun fact, like three years ago, um, Ashley and I had a pitch for sort of a car racing comic book. <laughs> And like we, we kept trying to give it to different artists, and all the artists were like, "Oh man, this whole book is about cars." Oh, is it similar and, to the whole like hands and horses? Like people don't like drawing that kind of stuff. Would you yeah, say cars falls into that? Exactly, exactly. So like we took that idea. We were like, okay, so maybe this idea isn't a comic book. Maybe this idea is a screenplay. And so we we made it. We turned it and we pivoted it into that idea. As far as the, going back to the Kickstarter, um, when you're approaching, okay, how do I get people to pre-order this? Obviously, there is a writing process, so to speak, as far as like using Kickstarter to convey your message to get people interested. How did you go about that? Is there writing involved? Did you decide to do a video? Like, walk me through that. Well, there there is a video on top of Kickstarter. You're supposed to make a video that um, you know kind of announces your project. It's 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 hit or miss whether people watch that video or not. The research is never 100% solid on that, but I think you should have a video because it makes you look a little bit more professional. The text of your Kickstarter campaign, for me, is the hardest thing to write. I've probably spent six hours writing the Kickstarter campaign for Science, the one that's going to come up on September 12th, because it's, it's always a fine line of right making sure the story comes across yet not coming across too much like please buy my book please exactly you know i find is just be honest i find i find to do it twofold i find you should like always have a section that is about your story talk about your story but don't talk about your story in generalities like be specific like be so specific about what the pieces of your story that you think are awesome, the pieces of your story that you are so passionate about, put that up top because if people don't like your story, you know, that's going to make or break whether they buy the book. And then below that, I always find is like, go and just talk about why are you making this comic book? Why are you on Kickstarter? And just be honest. We, we always say like, we're paying for the artist. That's we, we said on every Kickstarter campaign, we're paying for the artist. Without the Kickstarter campaign, this comic book doesn't happen, which is in all honest, it is always the honest truth. Like, you know, with our next comic book, whether it makes it or breaks it, if the Kickstarter doesn't happen, we don't make science because again, we don't have the $10,000 just sitting around. So be honest about that. You know, people, people know they're going to Kickstarter to buy a book. They know you're going to Kickstarter because you need the money to make this thing. So just Sell them on the idea of why you need to make this thing, which is a little bit about selling yourself a little bit, but why this needs to be in the world um, is is the primary message behind your campaign. I will say there is a great book, Greg Pak. Uh, he wrote Action Comics. I think he's writing a whole book right now. Um, he wrote a book about called Kickstarter Secrets. And you can buy it on his website, great, I think it's, which is, I think it's gregpak.com, P-A-K. And he gives you, we used a lot of tips from his book. It's a great book. If you've ever thought about kickstarting, like you want to read that book. Wow. And are other people using Kickstarter to get money to, to pay comic artists in the same way that you are? Or are there people who are getting money for comics but are using the money for other purposes? Like what are other people doing? It, you know, it's primarily the same reason we are. It's basically the idea of like the money is to produce the book. 
I see a lot of campaigns on there where people have made the book ahead of time and then they're, they're just, you know, using, um, the Kickstarter money to like basically print the book. There's people in there on Kickstarter, there's comic book artists and writers that are doing it where they're doing it issue by issue. Um, which I would, I, I am just not brave enough to attempt. I, I kind of feel like, no, you should do a graphic novel for the Kickstarter. But yeah, it is. A lot of people are using it. Uh, Jimmy Palmiotti, who wrote Harley Quinn and Jonah Hex for DC, he was like one of the founders of Marvel Knights with Joe Quesada. He has a very, very successful Kickstarter company called Paper Films. And about once a year, he'll throw up a graphic novel on Kickstarter and it always funds. And it's oh, basically wow. like one of these books that you can tell it's like a book where he's like, man, I really want to write this book, but I don't think any publisher will greenlight it and pay for it. So he takes it to Kickstarter, funds the entire book. And because he's Jimmy Palmiotti, as soon as he funds the book, a publisher always pr- picks it up because the publisher's like, oh, there is an audience for this. Huh? Wow. And what's the demographic of people that are out there uh, putting money into this? Have you done research into knowing kind of like, this is the amount of people who are out there who could potentially help us contribute? Or are you kind of promoting it to friends? Like, as far as the people you're targeting, how do you figure out who they are and how do you get it out to them? Um, I will say, you will be surprised how many of your friends will donate and how many of your friends won't donate. Um, if you're, if you're ever thinking about doing a Kickstarter campaign, I would say realistically think about your friends because you, we all know certain friends that say, if we were in a play, if you were the star of, let's say, hello, Dolly at the local community theater, and you invited all your friends on Facebook, you be honest with yourself. You know what ones are going to show and you know what ones aren't going to show. Um, those same friends are the same friends, the friends that would show up are the friends that would donate. Oh, wow. Interesting. So, so, so always look at your friends like that. You'll be surprised because actually we had a lot of friends like donate to our past Kickstarter campaigns and it always surprised me. We're like, Oh, Hey, cool. But, um, there's a great statistic that I've heard out there. And that is that whatever your social media following is, whatever your audience is like the number of people that subscribe to your mailing list. And I hope you have a mailing list or your YouTube channel or your Twitter, whatever, whatever section or audience you're targeting, only 6% of them will actually buy anything from you. Oh, wow. And the interesting thing about that is, is that that was exact for our, for our last Kickstarter, our Jupiter Jet campaign. It was exactly 6%. Any idea where that number comes from, or is that just, it just happens to be 6%? I don't know. I've heard that, the, that I, I, I did a lot of research for my first Kickstarter campaign, and I found that that was like some marketing research thing where people talked about that only 6% of your audience will actually buy anything from you. Because most people are just looking for the chuckle or they're looking for the, the, you know, the laugh or whatever that you're going to provide or whatever entertainment value you provide online. That's what they're looking for. Um, it's basically your super fans that will go for the 6%. So um, you always want to jump into different ponds is the idea I think about. Like you always want to like you have a circle of friends and you have a circle of people that follow you. But somebody you know or are acquainted with is over here and they have a different circle. And you all, you're, the, the goal is always to, how do you get your Kickstarter campaign or your idea, your book, your movie, whatever it is into that other pond? How do you, how do you let that other pond know about your project? And that's the goal. And if you do that and you keep doing that, you keep hopping through these different ponds or these different circles of friends, that's how you'll grow awareness and audience and everything like that. How do you choose to set the price? Because I know that I've had friends who um, have Kickstarter campaigns, and and sometimes the the number will be pretty re- reasonable, and sometimes the number will be like you know five hundred thousand dollars. Do you want to explain how that works? So I tend to always ask for exactly the amount we need. Okay. Because you know, I one, what's the point of doing Kickstarter if I still have to foot the bill? You know. Right. And two. Um, I'm, I don't want to be greedy with it. You know, my whole goal is to print the book. And, you know, if many people in my audience are, are going to read the book, then that's the whole point of the Kickstarter is to give it to them, right? So we do a budget. We, we work through the cost of the artist, the letterer, the colorist, the cost of actually printing it, 
the cost of shipping it, which is a huge expense. It's, it's the biggest expense in Kickstarter is shipping the book. Postage oh, wow. sucks. It took us like, it's like $22 a package to send something to Australia. And that, and that adds up if you have like 100 people buy something from Australia. That really adds up quick. And you wouldn't want to limit it to U.S. only. You'd always want oh, it to no. be. Okay. I would never, never want to do that because okay. I'm always surprised with um, – I actually did a live stream on my YouTube channel yesterday. And I had somebody be say like, hello from Norway. And I was like, oh, my God. Somebody <laughs> from Norway knows who I am? That's ridiculous. Wow. So, um, no, I don't think you ever want to limit it at all, but you, you have to budget for that or else you will, you will die. Postage will kill you. I do know a friend of mine who did a Kickstarter campaign about four years ago and he still hasn't shipped any of his international packages because the postage was so expensive and he just doesn't have the money to do it. And I, I, I say to him, I'm always like, well, you just didn't plan your budget well enough, my friend. So we we always do an idea. We we set a number, and we generally base it off of the previous Kickstarter campaign. We're like, you know, so if the previous Kickstarter campaign, 400 people donated. Okay, then let's just assume that 400 people will donate to this campaign. All right, cool. And then we look at the breakdown of, like, how many of those people were international, how many of those people were in Canada, how many of those people were in the United States. Because Canada is slightly cheaper than everywhere internationally, so you can lower that price a little bit. and then. We do that same breakdown for the budget. So we're like, okay, so 70% is the U.S. That'll cost, if we're going to print X amount of books with 400 people, that'll be this, that'll be this, that'll be this, that'll be this. And then the two secret flavors of Kickstarter budgeting that I've always found that many people don't know is one, Kickstarter takes 10% right off the top. So... Whatever you're asking for on Kickstarter, you better include that 10% or you'll oh, automatically get lower than what you expected. You're already, you will already be in the hole once you get paid. And two, always give yourself 5% for wiggle room because something will go wrong. It happens every time. Either the books will come out printed wrong and you'll have to reprint them or um, your, your, one of your bonus rewards will screw up or the book will get delayed, or postage will go up, and you'll need that 5%. So always bake in 15% on top of what you actually need. Let's say you start a Kickstarter campaign today. Um, let's say 20 friends chip in money. When you start another Kickstarter campaign a year or two years down the line, or maybe earlier, will those same friends always uh, donate, or is there a chance? Like I guess for me, I would, I would be more conscious, like, oh, I should only do this like once and make a count, because my friends might only pay me once. Or is that a false way of thinking uh it's a little bit of a false way of thinking if, you, if you're honest with your friends and you communicate with your friends you should know you should kind of like if you've kept up a relationship with those friends you should basically realize that oh yeah they're they, they'll still donate they, they still will um there's always a chance of a fall off um and that's the gamble of kickstarter but hopefully you've prepared and hopefully you've promoted enough and hopefully you'll do enough things to cover up that gap i always feel that you should never do more than one Kickstarter campaign a year is kind of the way that I feel about it. Our last Kickstarter campaign was in January of 2017. So I feel by doing one in September of 2018, we're, we are not taking too much water out of that well. You know, because you also, you never want your fans or your audience to ever feel like you're taking advantage of them because there are people just like you. They, they have jobs, they have bills, they have cars. They want to sit and watch movies and sit in the porch like we all want to do, you know, and not actually work. They're just like us. Um, so you never want to tax them. Um, and I, and I, have, I have seen that happen on Kickstarter where and, – and the people that I'll follow on Kickstarter where they'll, like, do four projects a year. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, ease it up. Wow. And then what about um, – do you have uh, insights or data that saying um, X amount of people that you know, X amount are people who you don't know? And then who are those people you don't know, and how do they discover your project? Um, generally, on Kickstarter, they'll give you an email link that can track where people are coming from. Kickstarter also will give you like some analytics about, like, are people coming from Twitter? Are people coming from this weird website? Are people coming from over here? Uh, you'll see that type of stuff. Um, hopefully, with whatever your pr promotion schedule is for your Kickstarter, again, it's like what I'm talking about. It's hopping to those different circles of friends. Um, Another thing I found is trying to do everything you can to make sure that Kickstarter features your project. 
Because if Kickstarter has an algorithm where they'll feature a product and mean like, oh, we love this project. We think this project is great. And if you do that, there is a certain group of people that will just hop on Kickstarter and look at projects and just fund stuff. I don't know who these rich bankers are <laughs> that love Kickstarter, but it's true. Like we, we got a good percentage of them in our last Kickstarter because we got features of the product we love. So that's another thing I would do is, is to make sure that you can be featured as a project that Kickstarter loves because then you can draw in really people that have never heard of you, people that have no idea who you are. Um, another great way that I have found that will draw people in that have no idea who you are is to ask people that, you know, maybe follow you on Twitter or you follow on Twitter and literally just ask them to share your campaign. You know, be friendly about it. Don't demand that they do it, but, but ask, be like, Hey, I'm doing this campaign. You know, would you, would you mind tweeting it out? Would you mind putting it on Facebook? That's through a direct message or that's a tweet or where do you well, do that? Well, sometimes, yeah, sometimes tweet, sometimes direct a message. Okay. Um, sometimes through, if you can find their um, email on a website, okay. uh, usually they have a professional email. Um, if you write the email professionally and they sort of know who you are on Twitter, like, you know, even if, I'm not saying like, even if you're not another professional, if you've had like exchanges with them on Twitter and they've been friendly, uh, you know, you're not going to their their Twitter account and being like, dude, the books you write suck. Right. <laughs> that, that person's never going to do you. A favor, but <laughs> if you go to Twitter and your interactions with like a, a, a professional are, Oh man, that last issue you wrote was great. Or I, Hey, I saw your last film and I, I really admired this scene. It was great. Like that type of stuff. Or you're asking them honest questions. You'd be surprised. Most people in those positions will share your stuff because they want to help you like the way they they were helped because everybody got to where they were through other people. It all it is especially in the creative industry it's all through who you know and who helped you. And we everybody I think wants to help everybody climb that ladder. And and doing that Kickstarter and helping like a writer get their book published is an easy way to do that. A tweet costs you nothing. It's true. But pe people only give up that tweet if they think it's valuable if they think that you are valuable like again if you're if you're an asshole on twitter they're never going to do it but if you are kind on twitter and you're funny on twitter and you know even if you criticize them on twitter because there is a way to criticize somebody on twitter without being a complete asshole they'll they'll more than likely do it and then my last question in regards to to the campaign is you know what separates you what makes crafting that message that request ultimately for money to finish this graphic novel. What is the art to separating yourself and exciting people about the project? And in this case, specifically your graphic novel. Oh, that's a great question, man. Um, I think that's always the challenge. That's always the goal, right? Like what, what separates yourself? Um, for us, we just, we put our passion up there because in every project we've done, our podcast, YouTube, everything, I make it no secret that I'm a fan of comic books online at all. And I love comic books and making comic books was the next step. So in everything I do, I'm like, Hey, I love comic books so much that I decided to put my money where my mouth is. And I decided to make a comic book and here's science. And, and I also like, I made it because I loved these old 1950s and 1960s serials. Like it's got that flavor. It's got that flavor and that idea of like, Oh, science and go to the moon. And, we're going to punch Mars and travel through time that, you know, those old <laughs> Isaac Asimov serials. Like I love that stuff. And that's the flavor of the project that I want. And, you know, we even decided to make it a little bit more special by doing it, um, by making it a little bit to a younger audience. You know, I would say the perfect audience for, for science is it's, you know, it's a teenager book, but we also write our books for their, they're all ages. So there, you could, a, a little kid could write it. A grandma can write it because I want everybody in the family to be able to just pass the book along. And we decided to make this little character in the book called Stat. But basically, it's a scientific teaching assistant. And Stat is this floating robot in their school and will pop up in the book every once in a while and give you the real science on the stuff the characters are doing. And there will be fantastical science. Like, there will be some made up stuff, of course, because, you know, we're going into new worlds and we're breaking space-time continuums and stuff like that. But I wanted to like kind of couch it a little bit. So the book becomes a little bit educational 
on top of being a good story or an exciting story, or hopefully you think it's a good story, but like it, it adds a little bit of a value in there. It'd be like, oh yeah, this book actually teaches you something. So it makes it a little bit valuable. So like that's the idea, the passion and the uniqueness, hopefully, of science will help push it out there and make people be like, oh, okay, this is really cool. Love it. Also, uh, um, and, I, and, I, and I hate this, I, I really, I sincerely hope that this doesn't come off of like, just buy my Kickstarter. Um, but we, in talking about the stuff, like helping other writers and stuff like that, we did these rewards for Jupiter Jet that were allowing people to get their script reviewed by professionals, by professional comic book creators. And we've done that again on science because I know if I saw a Kickstarter that was putting the ability to put my script and get it reviewed by a professional writing X-Men, I would have bought it in a heartbeat because I would have thought that was so valuable. So we've done that again on science. Cool. And on science, we have um, we got a script review from Tom King, who's the writer of Batman. Um, we also have a, a script review from Cullen Bunn who writes X-Men Blue. So if you are like curious about writing comic books and ever curious about that, like again, yeah, the, the money for that will be going to help us publish our book. But like that is so valuable. The, the information, like the ability to let one of these professionals see your script is amazing. And again, it, we talked about like how to get promotion, how to get that stuff. We got those script reviews because we just asked, I asked them. I literally just asked them. If they would do it. And they were like, yeah, of course. And how does that work? Like, how does somebody uh, actually get that? They donate and... Oh, so so there, so we'll have a level... Like, oh, there's a level. Rewards, there's, Got it. Okay. Yeah, rewards. And there's a certain reward that'll be like, it'll say the Tom King or Colin Bunn. There's many other writers, too, that we got. So you just purchase that reward. And then at a certain time, we will reach out to you. We'll be like, hey, turn in your 20-page script. And we will... You'll send the script to us. We will give it to Cullen or Tom or whoever the other writers are we have, and they will give you notes on your script, and then we'll send you back the notes. And then hopefully you can do an amazing rewrite and, and, and kick ass because you had a professional comic book writer look at your words. That's incredible. Um, is there one thing that you would say to someone who's starting a new Kickstarter campaign to get money to create or finish their comic or graphic novel? Is there one thing you'd say? Is there one theory of everything here? Uh, be honest. I see too many Kickstarters. One is go look at Kickstarter. Look at other projects. And if you like the idea, if you like the setup or the layout of what, how a project looks, steal it. Because we all steal from the best. There's that theory out there that there are only actually seven stories and we just all repeat them. So that's like basically stealing anyway. So if you see a comic book project out there that you or a comic book Kickstarter that you love, you love the design, you love the rewards, mimic it. Like take it because you're you're stealing from the you're stealing from the greats. Also, uh, the biggest mistake I see on Kickstarter is, and this goes really into being honest, is your funding amount. Be honest with your funding amount. If you are a person on Twitter who has less than a thousand followers. And let's say you don't have a YouTube channel. You don't really have a, a really solid audience. You're just on Twitter to be on Twitter and you're having fun. And that's fine. You can totally be on Twitter. You can use Twitter however the hell you want to use it. But if you go to Kickstarter and your goal is $200,000, <laughs> well, I'm sorry, friend. You're never going to fund that campaign. And, and I hate to say it, but I see more campaigns like that than I do of people going on Kickstarter and being like, I just need $2,000. Everybody thinks Kickstarter is the money, the ever-flowing money machine. And it's not. It's, it's you going to a person. Imagine you're in a store somewhere. You see a random stranger. You tap that stranger on the shoulder and you say, hey, I got this book. Would you want to buy it? And they either say yes or no. That's basically the physical representation of Kickstarter. Wow. So what's the next steps? I know you said that this comes out on September 12th. Do people sit back and wait for some more communications from you? Like, what's the best way to kind of get involved as soon as possible? Um, yeah, that, the best thing is, is to do that. Go to sciencecomicbook.com. Or, I mean, if you don't like using URLs, you can go to Kickstarter and search the URL and type in science. It'll be there at September 12th. Um, if, you, if you like what you see, uh, feel free to purchase the book. It will help us create it. And then once we get the product funded, um, we will um, activate our artist to continue drawing the rest of the pages that we've already written. 
And then it will also force Ashley and I to finish like the last 40 pages of the book that we need to write. Um, I mean, we, we got it all outlined out. We know where it's going. And then from there, it'll be, you know, taking the process from the inks to the colors to the letters, approving all the way, getting the complete book together, sending it to Canada to be printed, and then the physical books come out. And then once that comes out, it's mailing those next book. And then the whole process starts again. And because hopefully next year, we're doing another Kickstarter. That's great. So do you mind real quick going into something we like to call um, a series of seemingly random questions? They're, as I said uh, in past episodes, they're not seemingly random anymore. They're, 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 they're the same questions except for one tailored question to you. Uh, are you ready for that? Uh, I'm ready. Let's, let's do this. Let's do this. It says in your Twitter profile, and I know we discussed it briefly, that you grew up on a Kansas farm. Um, so I have to ask the question, if you could have a superhero power, a superpower, what would you choose and why? Okay, the big answer is I would say the powers of Superman. Because again, he's the Kansas son that succeeded. Look, in Kansas, we have two people. We have Dorothy and we have Superman. And we, more nine times out of ten, claim Superman more. I think uh, most women will claim Dorothy, but most men will claim Superman. If I can have all sets of powers, I'll have Superman. But if I can only have one power, I just want to be invulnerable. Is there any analogy uh, for Superman being like the one great, you know, you said there's like the two, right? The one great um, superhero who stands out among all and and you being the uh, creative who left Kansas to be like, you know, a great writer and is, is there an analogy there? Is it, would you? I mean, um, <laughs> I, I appreciate you calling me a great writer. That's very kind. Um, <laughs> um, I don't know if there's an analogy because that might be very presumptuous for me to be like, I'm Superman. But, but wait, your Twitter profile does have a photo of you opening your shirt with a Superman uh, logo. That's because so, I love Superman. So maybe I'm more right about this. Um, I will say the only analogy is that, like Superman, um, I was a Kansas farm boy that followed his dreams, that I didn't let anything. I will say I get a lot of messages sometimes through social media, but from people from Kansas, oh, like wow. usually teenagers that will email me and be like, man, I live in Kansas and you're such a, like, you're a dream to me. Like, I love that. And I'm not saying that to like pump up my head, but I'm saying that I'm like, I'm very surprised that I get that, especially from Kansas, because I think they were like I was when I was a teenager and they dream, they think that like coming to Los Angeles or working in the film and television business or even becoming a, a comic book creator is impossible. And the thing I will say to all of them is that it's not, it's not impossible. You just have to do it. And that's a lesson that I learned from Superman. Because think about it, Superman grew up on a poor Kansas farm and then he went on to become the galaxy's greatest superhero. And if there's an analogy for never stop trying, never stop believing, I don't know what it is. Because like, that's pretty great to me. And what is your kryptonite? Oh, uh, man, my kryptonite. Ooh. <laughs> it's funny you asked me this question. And I can't <laughs> uh, Someone was I bound say, to ask. I would say my kryptonite is... Um, is time management. It's always the bane of my existence. I'm one of those people that I tend to take on more than I actually have hours in the day to do. And I'm also a little bit of a workaholic to the fact that I'm pretty terrible with taking time off. So, and I know that's a very important thing. In fact, listening to your podcast, uh, to BJ Mendelssohn's episode, he said a fact out that really stuck with me. He was like, have a hobby that's outside you, you, your, your love and stuff like that. And because of that, uh, I've started like trying to take up watercoloring again oh, because wow. like, I like watercoloring and I like drawing. And, um, so that's, that's my kryptonite is I sometimes don't give myself a day off. I, there are several weekends where I just work straight through the weekend and I love to create and do that stuff. But it, I, I have found the older I get, it's true. It's true. Like you, when, if you get to the end of a weekend and a Sunday night, you don't feel like you took a day off, you, you, it hits you. You're, it kind of, it I hate to say it, makes you a little bit depressed. You're just like, oh, I didn't get a chance to rest. Right. Or I didn't get a chance to watch the movie like all Americans wanted to. <laughs> and especially with technology, it's, it's so easy to just be immersed in it at all times. So Yeah, 100%. Next question. Um, what is something about you 
or your career that nobody knows? Okay, this is a fun story. I love telling this one. Um, my second LA job was I was a professional audience member for the Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson. So there are companies in Los Angeles, and I found this through Craigslist, where for talk shows or award shows or um, sometimes concerts they film, they don't want there to be an empty seat in the audience when the camera cuts the audience. And, you know, some days of the week, you, you know, if you have like a talk show, you can't fill the audience just because, you know, it's a weird Tuesday and there aren't that many people in Los Angeles. So they will hire people. They'll pay you like, I think I got paid like $75 a day or something like that. Sometimes $50 a day, depending on what it was to just go to the show and put your butt in that seat. So I looked on Craigslist. I needed a gig because I only had that one PA gig and, you know, that was one day of work. And I found this on Craigslist. I went to the studio and I got to watch a free show of the Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson. And I, I was like, okay, I'm going to play it up. I'm going to be the big laugher. Like, I'm going to be like, ha ha, Craig, you're so funny. Woo! Like, I just did that a lot. And after the show, the producers stopped me and they said, hey, we know you came from this service. Um, we just like your energy. Do you just want to come here every day until? <laughs> and I said, because I was a big fan of Craig Ferguson, and I like the Late Late Show. And I was like, I get to be paid to watch the Late Late Show for free? Sure. Um, so for the next two weeks, I watched the Craig. Fer I was in the audience of the Craig Ferguson show every single day, uh, and it was really awesome. It was really cool because um, uh, in the middle of my second week, Craig Ferguson actually came up to me. And he was like, "Hey, I know you, you're our audience member." You're very nice. I appreciate your support. And he's like, I know you're like, you know, you don't have to fake it up so big. And I actually told him, I was like, no, I'm a huge fan of yours. I'm actually not faking anything. And he wow. was like, oh, I appreciate it. He was very lovely. Um, but, you know, I, I eventually got a full-time job and I had to quit that. But there was a two-week period where I was in the audience of every episode of The Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson. So if you go back to those episodes, the episodes following that are much quieter. There, <laughs> you, don't the you don't you don't hear that yeah. cool man well thanks for taking the time um it's been a lot of fun and definitely a lot of learnings and i feel like that um crash course on kickstarting your you know graphic novel or even anything will be super helpful to our listeners who are writing um so thank you again for taking the time and, and talking to us no thank you for having me and i and i will say to anybody listening to this if if this has convinced you to jump over the hump of doing a kickstarter um find me on twitter at Jawin. <laughs> Share me your campaign. Ask me to share it, uh, um, and, and be you know be nice about it. Don't be an asshole, but uh, ask me to share it. I'll, I'll take a look. I'll try if I can help you out. I will. You want to spell out Jawin? Oh, it, okay. at Jawin is uh, J A W I I N. All right. Thank you, Jason. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, fellas. All right, and thanks to everybody who's been listening, and we'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to the Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2018. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod. <laughs>